Well, good morning. Um, I don't know if you're a fan of Lord of the Rings. I guess many of you are. Uh, and uh, particularly perhaps the character of Frodo, who I think perhaps quite a lot of us uh, identify with. And Frodo uh, says this in Lord of the Rings. I wish this need not have happened in my time. So do I, said Gandalf. And so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for us to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. And as we look at taking holes, as we continue with our series, uh, looking at the book of Nehemiah, looking at a time in history where a man stepped out, where a man stepped up, a humble man, a prayerful man, and saw history changed through his availability and through, as we heard from Tim last week, through his heart. And this week, we're looking at how do we seize the day? How do we take hold of the moment that we're in? Because a bit like Frodo, we can look around and say, I kind of maybe wish this wasn't my time or my season. It's not been great. Even this week, I've met up with students and people who haven't had their graduation, haven't had their prom, haven't had their exams, people who've lost jobs, people who've lost hope. If you like, as we look at this city in Nehemiah, there's a resonance with us because we think, well, there's a city in ruins here. There's a Birmingham that has been caught out by fire. But the good news is, and I hope that this is good news for us today, is that he has chosen us for the rebuild. He's chosen us for such a moment as this, as Gandalf says there. And he says, so actually, what do we do with this moment? I first came across the phrase carpe diem, seize the moment, bit of Latin there for us this morning. Um, I didn't get into the Latin class at school, that probably won't surprise you, I was put into German. Uh, you could have had a choice and the very bright ones did Latin and the others of us did German. Um, so I didn't uh, fall upon Latin in that, but like many things in my life, I discovered it through films. And uh, I was watching Dead Poet Society. I don't know how many of you remember that film, a brilliant film with Robin Williams, a phenomenal actor. And in that film, he's playing this John Keating character who's a brand new teacher who's a bit radical and a bit different. And he gets these young boys who are used to towing the line, used to kind of quite an ordinary life in many ways. And he teaches them through poetry to seize the day, carpe diem. And that becomes a mantra for the boys throughout the film, sometimes in good ways, sometimes not so good. But he takes it from a poem that says, gather ye rosebuds while ye may. And he says to the boys, what do you think the poet was meaning there? And they say, oh, the poet was in a hurry. And he says, no. What the poet wanted us to know is that life is fleeting, that life is fragile, and that we need to take hold of our day, our moment, the time that we have been given. And he says to the boys, this is your time. I don't know how many of you watched the football, as Alice was referring to earlier on, when Denmark were playing Finland. And when suddenly 
Horrifically, Christian Eriksen, a very fit 29-year-old player, fell to the ground in cardiac arrest. And within seconds, his team, as you can see here, gathered round him, some of them crying, some of them praying, some of them looking inwards to him, some of them looking outwards to shield him, but all of them a team, all of them together protecting him, building a wall around him, if you like, for safekeeping. And the stadium fell silent. I was actually watching it at the time that it happened, as many of you will have been. And there was this hush around the stadium. And, and it was too big for us, wasn't it? The moment was too big. Even the commentators and the pundits stopped commentating, pundits. And they said, oh, gosh, this is a moment that's bigger than football. <laughs> for a pundit to say that, that's pretty big, isn't it? Um, but actually, there, there was this silence that came because suddenly, once again, we've been reminded of the fragility of life. And no one quite knew what to do but pray. And it was interesting on Twitter seeing a number of comments that talked about prayer works, guys. <laughs> you know, there was one guy who said, I'm an atheist, but I saw prayer in that stadium. And I felt something, interestingly. And Nehemiah is an ordinary guy, as we heard from Tim last week. But he is a guy who knows how important prayer is. He knows that before he acts, before this despair takes hold of him, he needs to pray for his city that is in ruins. And we know, don't we, that actually prayer relocates us in the moment. It, it creates adventure. One of the reasons I love prayer is because it creates an adventure. If I start a day with prayer and I actually ask for opportunities and I find them, it makes me think I'm on a journey. My life is counting. If I forget to do that or I get distracted or busy then the same adventure is not the same. It's not as exciting. It's not as in focus. And Nehemiah has been praying. He's been crying. He's been crying out to God. And then as the cupbearer to the king, he comes in to see the king. And the king notices that for once, he isn't smiling. That for once, he looks downcast. And the cupbearers had a role to play, which was apparently to keep people cheerful. I guess if they had the wine, that was quite a good thing to do. But they, they came in and they kept people cheerful. They were the trusted friend for the king. They had good demeanour. They were personable. But suddenly, Nehemiah can contain this no longer. And haven't many of us felt like that? The mask is down. I know we've literally got masks on. But the other, the metaphorical masks that we've worn have been taken down. And we're grieving our city because we see that it's in rubble. We see that lives are in ruins. But what Nehemiah does, and I, I really love this, is that he does three things that we're going to look at. He seeks out the king. Then he steps out and then he speaks out. Incrementally, step by step, perhaps he dares himself in God to take these incremental steps. These three things that we see in the passage where he seeks out, he steps out, and he speaks out. William Booth was asked how he started the brilliant Salvation Army moment, who have done so much for so many cities in, in, uh, in homelessness, in addressing poverty, and in worshipping God. And William Booth was asked about when the movement started, and he said, I've got one word to describe how we began. And I guess we all think, was it Jesus? <laughs> is it going to be Jesus? Is it going to be prayer? And he said, no, the moment is now. The moment was now that we saw what was around us. And we said, God, use us now. We are your hands and feet. We are your people. 
And Nehemiah does the same thing. He says to the king, and what we hear is, I love this verse. He says, I was very afraid, but... I was very afraid. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king. And the thing about that is it's a kind of double whammy because it doesn't really let any of us off the hook, does it? It doesn't say, you know, I put my Superman pants and my cloak on and I zoomed into the king. He says, I went in fear. I was very much afraid, but... And I sense the reason that he has the courage that he does is chapter one, is that he's done his praying, he's done his crying out, And he thinks, this is my moment. The king has asked me why I look so sad. And he says, I was very much afraid, but I said to the king. And I think for all of us tuning in or whether we're here in the room today, there's a sense that Nehemiah could have said, I wasn't even supposed to be here. I'm in exile here. I want to be back with my people. And yet I'm cupbearer here to the king. And we felt as we were praying for today that there was a sense where you might feel displaced. You might feel, I'm not where I was supposed to be. I wasn't supposed to be out of a job. I wasn't supposed to be a single mum trying to make ends meet. I wasn't supposed to be living in Birmingham, as Andy said. You know, I remember first moving to Dudley and thinking, why have you sent me here? And over time, really, really, I didn't quite pick up the accent. Sorry to anyone watching from Dudley. But I came to really love it because I prayed for it. And wherever we are, there's a sense of displacement at the moment. There's a sense of why are we here, but. I'm very much afraid, but. And I felt that God wanted to say to us that wherever you are at the moment, however tough that may be, there's a purpose to it. There's a reason we are where we are. So Nehemiah comes before the king And he gets a little bit audacious, actually, after a while, doesn't he? He goes from this slightly scared person to saying, could you give me the paperwork, O king? And could you fund it, O king? And could you send me back to my people so that I can rebuild the city? And the king says yes. The king says yes. And I I read um, just this last week uh, a really challenging thing, actually, for me um, in in my devotions that said... um, Actually, how do we live, as we reflect on our lives, how do we live in a way that only makes sense if God is alive and active in the world? How do we live in a way that only makes sense if God is alive and active in the world? That is challenging me. It's been burning in me all week in a way, and I I, I still haven't completely answered it. Um, But Nehemiah is doing that, isn't he? He's living in the boldness of knowing that he has a God who's going to change the heart of a king. You know, tremulous, scared, yes, but actually willing to speak out. And so he travels, he goes, he steps out, if you like, and he goes back to return to gather people to rebuild the city walls. He returns, he steps out. We read, if your servant has found favour in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. He steps out and he receives provision. I don't know how many of you remember David Wilkerson, uh, who was watching television in uh, Pennsylvania, in America, when he saw these young boys in a court in New York who were trying to be defended for gang violence, gang warfare. And he felt the Lord say, go, go to New York. He'd got new children. He'd got a young family. He'd got a wife in Pennsylvania. And yet, 
radically, he went to New York City, taking very little with him, but just this sense that God had asked him to step out. And what I love about this story is it begins where he bumps into a guy called Manny who has no shoes on, who's part of one of the gangs and is walking around barefoot. And what David Wilkerson does is he just simply takes his shoes off right there in the middle of the street in New York and he gives them to Manny. And there's a lovely moment where Manny puts them on and he's dancing around on the street and he says, I never had new shoes before. That's the first way in to the gang was an act of kindness, was an act of slight humiliation for David Wilson because presumably he's then walking around with no shoes on at all. But Manny has the new shoes and Manny has a little bit of respect, a little bit of restored dignity. And so, if you like, the walls begin to rebuild. People's lives begin to rebuild. Now, he goes on to see radical changes. He sees gang warfare brought to an end. He sees the gangsters actually put in charge of the collection at church, being trusted with it. He sees them laying down their arms. Sounds like we've got some arms going on <laughs> at the moment. You can hear gunfire. I think it's the children just banging things. Um, but actually, he starts small and then it goes big, a little bit like Nehemiah. He steps out and then amazing things change. And then finally, he speaks out. He says to the people when he arrives uh, that actually he needs their help. He needs them to rebuild the city. He says, if your servant has found favour in his sight, let us rebuild. And so they do together. And the people, whether they are of the same faith as him or not, gather together to start the rebuild. There's a momentum to it. And like us with our vision at the moment, when we look at it, it does feel a bit audacious for Riverside Church to step out in this way. We know that what we have laid before you, if you like, what Tim has put to us over the last few weeks, cannot happen without God. It's impossible, really, without him. It's audacious. And Nehemiah was the same. He knew that his challenge to the people was an audacious one, was a bold one, was a brave one. But he couldn't help but do it. Why? Because God had sent him. And that is what we believe. And I've loved the humility with which Tim has shared it because he said, we may not have it all right, but we'll join together trying because we believe that God has asked us to rebuild the city of Birmingham, to bring life for every generation, to bring hope, to bring healing, where there has been the fire and destruction, if you like, to bring the hope and the healing. And for every one of us here and online, there will be a different passion. From Nehemiah's was to build the city, to rebuild the city for his people. But there'll be different passions here. There'll be different what I call divine dissatisfactions in every one of us. Some of you will know that when I was five, I drove past, well, I didn't drive past, that would be wrong, uh, but somebody drove me, I presume it was my parents, past Dartmoor Prison at the age of five. And I was so emotional about that place, so fascinated by prisons, that they were really quite worried about me you know, watching programmes on it, I would light up because it was about prisons. Because there was a divine dissatisfaction that was born in me and that actually years later, when I was asked when I joined Salt Mine Trust, what is the one thing you would like to see? Well, what would you like to see change in the trust? And I said, I'd like us to go into prisons regularly 
That was my moment. But it had been years in the making, but that was my moment to, perhaps with fear, to say that's what I would like to happen. And it was a really, really positive time. I don't know how many of you have been to the Van Gogh exhibition that's at the Hippodrome. It's been extended uh, and it's been put to music. And all of his paintings have not only been accompanied with music, but some of his brilliant quotations as well come up on the screen. And you go in and it's highly immersive. And you see the Dutch painter Van Gogh's paintings all around in huge, huge form. And one of the quotes that really kind of moved me was this. He says, I cannot change the fact that my paintings just will not sell. But the time will come when people will recognise that they are worth more than the value of the paint and the picture. And I felt really moved when I saw that come up on the screen because I thought, here we are. Look at us. We know it's worth more than ever he thought when he was doing it. And I wanted to shout to him, Vincent, we're here. <laughs> you know, we love what you did. They knocked you back. They criticised you. They didn't get it. But we get it now. You've left a legacy of beauty, of colour, of sunshine. You've left a legacy for us to enjoy. And as we look at the new vision, there's very much part of that is legacy. What are we going to rebuild for the next generation beyond us and the next? What are we going to pass on that will outlive us? Because what happens for Nehemiah outlives him big time. And he gets his opposition. Now, I'm going to be a little bit careful here, but maybe a bit cheeky. Um, I, last week, we had the bricks here, and we, we all wrote our names on the Jenga bricks, if you're here in the room, and Melody's been using bricks, and there's obviously a theme of building and rebuilding as we look at Nehemiah. But I guess if every one of us has a brick, as we did last week, and every one of us has a name that we write on that brick, there's almost two things we can do. If we're a critic today, and we're an armchair critic, and hasn't that been easy in a way during lockdown because we haven't had many other options, we can almost hurl the brick at the television and just say, I don't like that vision. I'm going to be a critic. It's the easiest thing to be, actually, isn't it, a critic? Because we sound quite important. <laughs> we sound a bit knowledgeable. I, I know I've done it. You know, we've all done it, haven't we? We've all criticised, and suddenly it slightly elevates us. I wouldn't have done it that way. And that's one way we can approach it. And I am sure during lockdown there has been criticism. In fact, I know there has. And part of it is because we've been frustrated and we've wanted to join in and perhaps we haven't been able to. And suddenly, like the pundits, if you like, the critics, we become a critic ourselves. And maybe we use the brick to throw. But what if we use the brick to write our name on and build We've loved it when we've had emails that have challenged us around the vision, and we have. But what's been really exciting is a bit like Tim said last week, when we've had an email that has said, you know, I want the youth to open up every week. Well, so do we. <laughs> and they've said, so can we be part of it in some way to make that happen? And that's, that's the people of God saying we want to build. We want to build together. We don't want to just be a critical bystander. Yes, we want to challenge, but count us in. Because we're in a moment where all of us are needed. And as I was praying this morning, I felt God say, every name is pre-written on the brick. It's already there. There's already a role for you to play. In some way or other, there is a role for you. It might be just starting off a group in your home and inviting a few people. I know some of you have done that already. I hope you're enjoying it. Uh, but how brilliant to just take that step. 
to be maybe afraid to do it, but to do it anyway for that legacy that will outlive us, to give hope, to give healing. As I come to a close, I want to just repeat a story that I have shared uh, years before, but is one of my favourite stories. So forgive me if you've heard it, but it does bear repetition, I think. There was a lady called Joanna growing up in the townships of Johannesburg, um, when she saw, uh, I think she heard actually on the radio, the news that in Polsmore Prison in Cape Town, there had been 172 attacks and death, officer on prisoner, prisoner on officer, prisoner on prisoner, in one year. And the headline was, is this now the most evil place in the whole of Africa? That was the question. Because 172 violent assaults and deaths had happened. Now, I don't know if you know South Africa, but the townships are full of very vulnerable people. Uh, she was there listening on her radio. She had very little in the way of resource, very little in the way of money. But what she decided to do was to contact the prison. Now, she lived far away, but she decided to travel to ask to speak to the governor of the prison. You'll see the parallels with Nehemiah here. And she kept on asking until the governor said, OK, what harm can it do? We're making the headlines for all the wrong reasons. This, this humble woman from the townships came in and she said, can I read the Bible for an hour a week with a few prisoners just to help? If you like, she wrote her name on her brick and she brought it. And she said, here's me, here's what I can do. I can give you an hour with the men and he said oh what what harm can she do go on then and he got her cleared and she went in and she would start to these hour sessions reading the bible with the men but the men loved it so much that it went to a day a week and then they loved it so much and there were so many participants that she went in every single day every single day and just did studies with the men so that the truth of the Bible, the truth that they were loved, the truth that God had a purpose for their lives, the truth that he loved them, that he didn't want this violence for them, that he didn't want this poverty of spirit, that he wanted hope for them, suddenly started to resonate in this prison. And after a year of this one woman going into this huge prison, and I've been there, it's a scary, scary place. Guess how many deaths and attacks there were in custody? There were two. So, you know, if you look at the stats, and I'm not great at that sort of thing, there's 172 down to two can only be possible with the work of God. So when we ask ourselves that question, are we living a life that could only be possible if God is alive and active? Joanna can say a resounding yes, because he changed not only the heart of a governor, but change the whole temperature and climax and the climate of a prison. And he can do that. God can do that through you and I. His heart is to do that through you and I. And I wonder as we respond this morning, if there's one thing, a bit like Nehemiah, when he speaks out for that first time with fear and trembling, is there one thing that you can do this week that will make a difference? One email that you can send, one way that you can support, one act of kindness like David Wilkerson, where you can say, this is our city. Yes, it's in rubble. Yes, it might feel that way at the moment. But for such a time as this, we seize the moment to bring about God's kingdom. Maybe this is your moment to invite your friends to watch church. Maybe this is your moment to say, I'll help with the youth. Maybe this is your moment to say, I'll lead a small group. We need people uh, to make the vision come to life. We need your yes, the yes of God within you. 
there are some words from Teresa of Avilia who says this. Christ has nobody now on earth but ours. No hands but ours. No feet but ours. Yours are the eyes through which the compassion of Jesus must look upon the world. And that stills me and challenges me at the same time because we're it. (laughs) There's no plan B. God's put his hope in us. And Jesus knew what exile was like. Jesus, if you like, is a parallel to Nehemiah. He left the hope of heaven, the home of heaven, and was exiled. If you like, his Babylon was being here with us. And he showed us a way to build. He showed us a way to build a kingdom that was completely different from anything anyone had ever seen before. A heavenly kingdom on earth. And that's our remit, isn't it? If we're followers of Jesus today, our remit is to build again, but to build a heavenly kingdom on earth, on earth as it is in heaven. And he loves you so much. And if you have no faith, and today you perhaps just feel something stirring in you to think, really, God, you would choose me? The answer is yes. He's chosen you, your DNA, your brick, to build his beautiful kingdom.